When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Joey Coleman. He is the author of Never Lose an Employee Again. The subtitle, The Simple Path to Remarkable Retention. And I've known of Joey for a very long time because... He had a previous book called Never Lose a Customer Again, which was very much in the marketing circles that I moved through. And he's been in the customer experience field for 20 plus years, helping organizations create remarkable customer and employee experiences. So in this conversation, we're focusing in on his new book and we're talking about that crucial first 100 days of a new job where the employer has an important job to make a positive first impression. We also walk through the employee journey through eight phases. Yes, eight phases, as well as the impact of remote work on that onboarding process. We're going to talk about the significance of that acclimating phase in the beginning, how organizations can avoid information overload and excessive speed when they're doing onboarding. I have been there. I know many of you have been. So much information, so little time, not striking that and not reversing that like Willy Wonka, but also how the interconnectedness of the customer and employee experiences are crucial for organizations to prioritize. They can't just pick one or the other. They have to do both well. And also we get into strategies and techniques to create a meaningful remote onboarding experience, making sure that new employees feel affirmed and connected, even when they're not physically present in the office. So I'm going to get out of the way and just say, enjoy this conversation with Joey Coleman. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show, Joey Coleman. Joey, welcome to Beyond the To-Do List. Oh, thank you, Eric. It is such a pleasure to be here. So appreciate the invitation and so appreciate everybody joining in. I'm glad that listening to this podcast was on your to-do list, folks who are listening. I'm glad that you made time to listen to the show. Well done. Well done. Thanks for the extra intro there. So, (laughs) okay. Now, I know this is one of those questions that you probably get asked a lot because I know and knew of you before you were talking, or at least recently talking about the book, Never Lose an Employee Again. You used to be, and still are, somebody who talks about the customer journey and and business, you know, firing on all cylinders and being good at, you know, what they're good at in terms of serving their customers. But the other side of the house, or I should say the inside of the house, is where you're focusing right now. What changed your perspective or your dial on your telescope or your, you know, your microscope or whatever you want to call it? So, you know, it's interesting, Eric, I've been in the customer experience space for over 20 years and I had been in that space for about, let me see. Oh yeah. Five minutes when I realized that you can't have a great customer experience 
if you don't have remarkable employees who are going to help you deliver that experience. So it's something that I've always seen as part of the conversation. The reason I decided to write a book specifically about the employee side of experience as opposed to just the customer side of experience is because I think in most organizations, they see those two topics as being totally separate. There's the people on our team that work on CX or customer experience, and then there's the people on our team that work on EX or employee experience, when the reality is customer experience and employee experience are completely intertwined. They're two sides of the same coin. As we improve one, we improve the other. As one goes down, it drags the other down with it. Now, I know that you've got some interesting kind of stats, I guess. This one shocked me, the one about how many people. It's it's like a pretty high percentage that in their first chunk of time end up not staying at a job they just started. I think people would be pretty startled to hear that. Yeah, across all industries globally, 40%, 40% of new hires won't make the one-year anniversary. What's crazier than that is 22% will leave in the first 45 days. If you're talking about hourly workers, 50% quit their job within the first 100 days. So depending on the role you have, depending on the industry you're working in, it is significant double-digit percentage of people who are leaving almost as quickly as we bring them in the front door. It's amazing. I mean, amazing in a not good way. It's a bad thing, but it's it's kind of shocking to hear those statistics. And we think, oh, well, is that that's just more of a now thing. But I think that's probably been around for a while. Right. I mean, we've heard all the big stats, big numbers, you know, layoffs. We're like, oh, no, that's part of that. The layoffs are part of that. No, actually. Yeah. So, for example, that 40 percent number started to cross into 40 percent in about 2007. So let's just base that in. In 2007, the number was 40%. And it's been growing since then, right? But that's, you know, kind of global data looking at it. And it's only increasing. I came across some data, speaking of the now, two days ago, brand new research released by Gartner. I found this fascinating, okay? Brand new research. Gartner surveyed 3,500 people who had accepted a job offer in Q1 of 2023. So a couple months ago, Q1 of 2023, they had accepted a job offer. Of those people who accepted the job offer, 50% did not show up for the first day of work because they had accepted another job offer in the interim period between accepting the first job offer. 50%. That's the now number. That's the current number. That's what businesses are dealing with today. That's insane to me because I go on my LinkedIn and I know personally, privately on other networks too, but on LinkedIn specifically, I see friends sharing other colleagues' positions that they're looking for. Like people are looking, they're trying to get people to fill these spots. And then also I know of people who've been searching and looking for most of this year. So to hear that half of the people that had said yes, then didn't show up, I'm just like, what is going on? I don't understand. This is a great conversation, Eric, and it's a perplexing situation. The reality is the numbers show aggregately across all people that we have more jobs than we have employees to fill. Okay, There are more open positions on the planet than there are workers who want to work those positions. We also have a really interesting thing that's happened since COVID in that pre-COVID, the majority of people worked for an employer that was located within 30 miles of their home. 
Now, many people work for an employer that isn't even in the same state or the same country as their home. This is kind of the benefit of remote work and, you know, companies and organizations getting comfortable with people not being under the same roof working together. The challenge, though, is to your friends and the folks you know, and I know some too, who are looking for jobs, there are some people who, for whatever criteria they've established on their job search, can't seem to find work. And this is the disconnect with employers saying we can't find good people and employees saying I can't get the job I want to have. The operative words in that are the job I want to have and good people, right? So we can find people, but maybe not the right ones. We can get a job, but maybe not the right one. I think the opportunity for us is to get clearer about what we're looking for as employees and what we're looking for as employers. Well, I want to come back around to the beginning here and say, okay, you've got a brand new book out. It's called Never Lose an Employee Again, The Simple Path to Remarkable Retention. Now, I know books take a while, not just in the writing phase, but in the planning and marketing and eventually releasing phase. So this has been in the works for a while. So in light of all that, I'm curious at what stage in the previous now were you deciding this is the book and it needed to happen now? So not long after my first book, Never Lose a Customer Again, came out in 2018, I started thinking about the next book. And part of the impetus for the next book came from an email I received from somebody who had read my first book. And the email just said this, Dear Joey, if you wrote a book called Never Lose an Employee Again, I would buy it. And it was signed by the sender of the email. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I hadn't, to be candid, thought of the simple task of swapping out one word in the title and changing the uh to an an and saying like, oh, we could have the same book. But I, again, I knew that employee experience and customer experience, two, you know, sides of the same coin. Well, I subsequently received almost a dozen emails that were exactly the same. No additional context. Just, dear Joey, if you wrote a book called Never Lose an Employee Again, I would buy it. Now, the marketer in me says, that is a buying sign from the marketplace that there's an interest in this. So I started doing some of my own research. I started talking to other business owners I knew. I started looking at this and I realized a couple of things. Number one, employee retention was a bigger problem than customer retention. And even fewer people were talking about the issues with employee retention than were talking about the issues with customer retention. So I'm like, oh, target-rich environment, this is a big issue, something people need to pay attention to. I then started realizing how many leaders were struggling mightily with this. They didn't feel they knew what to do. They didn't know how to do it. They were lost in both strategy and tactics and didn't have a formula or a mode for doing this. I then took the formula that we had applied for customer experiences and started applying it with some of my private coaching clients for their employee experience. And the results we saw, Eric, were incredible. We took employee retention numbers through the roof. We stopped having employees quit. We had people that were able to see increased profitability, increased productivity, increased efficiency because they weren't running a revolving door when it came to their employees. That led me to reach out to my publisher and say, I got an idea for a second book, never lose an employee again. So we signed the deal and then COVID came along. And when COVID came along, I reached out to my publisher and I said, stop the presses. We weren't printing yet, but I always wanted to say that. We got to pump the brakes on this because I think the landscape for work is about to be changed in a way that is unprecedented in human history and is going to change the experience that people have with work for the foreseeable future. And I'm thinking decades, not quarters. Thankfully, we did. 
And it allowed us to write more about remote work, think more about remote work, factor these things into the book, into the concepts we were exploring. And that's how we end up in the now. So you got to see things kind of shake loose, fall apart to a certain extent, for better or for worse, both really, and then kind of take the pulse and then in a way be part of the solution with this book. At least that's certainly been my hope, Eric, right? We try as human beings wherever we can to be as much of a part of the solution as opposed to being part of the problem. And I like to think, and the readers have responded this way, and the folks who have implemented the strategies and tactics in the books, that they're seeing incredible results. Okay, so I'm going to try and stump you, though I know that that's probably not going to happen. Without diving into the depths of the book just yet... On a very surface level, is there some kind of just simple disconnect you can point to between what potential employees are looking for and what potential employers are willing to offer or are looking for? Is that the answer here? Is the disconnect the issue? And then how do we start to even inch into, again, I don't assume that it's always the potential employee's fault per se. I think maybe more of the onus goes on employers, but Maybe not. So anyway, there's like five questions in there. Take your pick. (laughs) Let me see if I can parse out one or two. So here's what I think on this. It's kind of like when you have two siblings that are fighting. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a family. I'm one of seven kids. And my parents always used to say things like, it takes two to tango. It takes two to fight. It's it's not just one's fault or the other, right? No matter what has happened, 99% of the time. I think the same holds true in an employment context. We've got challenges with the employees. We've got challenges with the employers. And each are equally to be praised and equally to be criticized for some of the ways that they show up. If I were to boil it down to the fundamental disconnect between employers and employees, it can be summed up in the following sentence. If I go and talk to CEOs, leaders, business owners, the common lament that almost all of them have is I wish my employees cared as much about this business as I do. Okay. But if I were to go to the typical employee in that business I would find a common lament of, I wish my employer cared as much about me as they care about the business. Mm. This disconnect, this fundamental belief that those people over there don't care about me is pervasive in almost every area of our life, and it gets magnified in the workplace. Here's what I know to be true, though. I've had the pleasure of working with tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of businesses all around the world. All the CEOs, all the leaders that I've talked to actually do care deeply about their employees. But I think many struggle with showing it or saying it. And I think most employees actually care about the place they work. They want to contribute. They want to be seen as providing value. They want to create an impact, but they're not particularly clear that that is recognized or wanted or appreciated. And so I think that's the disconnect we're dealing with. That does ring true to me. I mean, I've been in a number of places and it's been, you know, varying degrees of we care about you. We're a family here and other different descriptors and, you know, describing the mission statement and our core values. And this is what we believe and you have worth and we want to celebrate you and all these different things. Again, when I hear all that, I'm thinking to myself, okay, the employer wants them to care about the business as much as they do. 
the onus for that, I think, comes more on the employer to provide the onus of doing that. Because I think sometimes the employees just think, no, I'm looking for fit. I'm looking for meaning. I'm looking for, and we've heard all this before. Obviously, this has been yep. part of the vernacular of the business world, as well as calling and all these kinds of great words and the deep meanings that come along with those. However, I'm speaking from personal experience here. So I really feel like it's the organization, a larger percentage. I don't know how much larger, but I think a larger percentage of it. And tell me if this is ringing true at all. I think the larger percentage falls on them because it's their place and it's their facilitation of the inner and outer workings of all of it. Eric, I would agree with you. I think the larger percentage does fall on the organization. But before anybody gets super excited, that doesn't mean that the employee's percentage is zero or 1%. Right. This may be a 51-49 type thing. This may be a 60-40 type thing. The organization has the ability and the resources to put into place the systems, the processes, the frameworks to allow an employee to develop a career, to allow an employee to impact at a greater level than they could impact if they were on their own. However, it is not enough for employees to hit the workforce and be like, I want you to take care of me, mom and dad. I want you to think about everything so I don't have to think about anything. I want you to spoon feed me everything. We spoon feed a baby, but pretty quickly, the baby starts feeding themselves. And if we're still spoon feeding the 10-year-old, we need to have some conversations about our approach to parenting, right? So I think there needs to be some give and take, but I do think the organization, the employer has to go first, has to lay the foundation and say, this is our plan for developing your career. This is our plan for checking in with you to seeing if you're happy. This is our plan to making sure that you feel that next year is more successful for you than this year. However, you have a responsibility to avail yourself of these opportunities. You have a responsibility to tell us what you're thinking. You have a responsibility that if something isn't working to raise your hand and say, hey, this isn't working for me, instead of getting jaded and poisoning your coworkers and then turning around and saying, that's it, I'm out of here and flipping your desk as you leave the office, right? So there's got to be some give and take from both sides. So speaking of infancy, I think that that's a great place to kind of say You've got this framework of the first hundred days, almost that infancy of your employment at whatever the establishment is. Can you break that down for us, that first hundred days and why that's so important? Yeah, so the first hundred days is not only important because it's an interesting short period amount of time, but it's interesting because all the research shows that our opinions, our beliefs as human beings about whether we want to stay with an employer the foundation for that is laid in the first hundred days. Those initial impressions matter. That initial time of getting used to a culture, getting up to speed on their cadence and their operation of doing business, connecting personally and emotionally with our coworkers and our colleagues and figuring out what our role in the culture is going to be. All of those things happen very early on in the relationship. Now, the question then becomes, Eric, is when is day one of the first hundred days? Many employers believe that day one is your first day on the job. I wholeheartedly disagree with that assessment. Day one is when the prospective employee first says, I'd like to explore employment with this employer. So the first time they come to the careers page or the about us page on your website, the first time they submit an application or a resume, the first time they see your help wanted ad, when their mind first says, hmm, this could be a place for me. 
that's when that 100-day clock starts ticking. So when you think about your interview and hiring process, when you think about the gap between when they accept their job offer and they have to give notice where they're working, maybe two weeks, and they're going to come work for you two weeks later, in many scenarios, when they show up for the quote-unquote first day on the job, it might be day 15, day 30 of that 100-day experience. And everything you've been doing before then has contributed to the connection they feel to your organization and your enterprise. Now, how rigid of a time frame here for that 100 days are we talking? And are we trying to find out like, hey, so how did you hear about us? Like if they get to the point of submitting an application and they get to the point of getting an interview and they get to the point of an offer and they accept it and then they show up and we get to that other date that most people would think is the start of the 100 days, it could have been 30, 60, 90 days or even more than 100 days already at that point. So I'm curious, what's the flexibility in terms of this time frame? There's definitely some flexibility, and we want to bring some logic and some empathy to the conversation when we look at these numbers and these frameworks. But I think if you're not sure, presume that the day they submit their application or send in their resume is day one. If you're not sure, just start there and then run it. And so if you've got an organization where from the time somebody submits a resume to the time you call them for an interview is 60 days, guess what? There are going to be a lot of people that don't even want to come in for an interview. And some people say to me, they're like, Joey, we just we just can't get people to come for interviews. I'm like, awesome. What's the lag time between submission and when you call them back? Well, we've got a lot going on right now. Oh, great. Love the defensiveness that is coming into the conversation already. How about we answer the question? Oh, it's about 90 days. What in your life Do you say I'm interested in and 90 days later when they say, okay, I'm interested in you too, are we willing to say, okay, great, let's start a relationship? Very few things, okay, very few things. So I think we need to pay attention to that time. It's less to me about what day is it and more about what phase in the employee journey are you in? And I detail in the book eight phases of the employee journey. And I think the key thing organizations need to remember is what phase are you in right now? And what phase am I trying to get you to next? And they come in a linear progression. And where we get into trouble is when we try to jump around and move too fast or jump too far in the journey too quickly. I want to definitely jump into those eight phases. One more thought here on the 100 days. So in that initial 100 days, and I want to also couch that into where it falls in the eight phases, obviously probably right up front somewhere. But um, in those first 100 days, what do employers need to be focusing on so that that first 100 days is going right, getting a good kickstart to this relationship? I think we can do a couple of things and we can dive deep into the like specifics as we continue the conversation. But I think generally, I would want employers to keep two basic things in mind. Number one, it's about the first hundred days, not the first two days. Way too many employers are like, let's flood them with information on their first day at work and their second day at work and then push them into the deep end of the pool and say, just swim and produce and provide value for us. No, we have to think more intentionally about the time frames that we're talking about and how much time we're giving people. So we don't want to make it too much. And we also don't want to make it too little. 
It's not enough to say, well, they applied 30 days ago and they got the job and uh, now they're here at work. So I'll pay attention to the, you know, the next two months and then that's it. And then it's on autopilot and we're off to the races. No, the first 100 days is about laying a foundation. The research shows that if on day 101, you're loving being at work, the typical employee will stay there for at least three years. That's what the data shows. That's what the research shows. But they're not going to stay there if on day 101, you're like, my work is done here. We don't need to do anything else to build personal and emotional connection with our team. So the first 100 days is really meant to kickstart the conversation and kickstart your focus and your intentionality. But once this foundation is laid, we need to continue to build on it going forward. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Okay, so the word first, obviously that implies it comes right up front. Where does that 100 days fall in the eight phases? Is it the first thing or is it part of the first thing? Kind of let's walk through these eight phases, give a good like, you know, overview of what we're finding in each of these phases. Absolutely. So Eric, let me give you a speed overview of the eight phases. And just so everybody listening knows, they all start with the letter A. And the idea behind that is because if you get each of these eight phases right, it's like getting straight A's on your report card from your employees. They're loving the experience. They're feeling good. You're firing on all cylinders. All right. The first phase is the assess phase. This is when a prospective employee is trying to decide whether or not they want to work with you. And we're trying to decide if this is the person we want to hire. They're assessing our company. We're assessing them as a candidate. In the assess phase, they're looking at your job description or your job posting, your classified ad. They're submitting their resume or their application. They're going through your interview and hiring process. That's all happening in the assess phase. We then come to phase two, the accept phase. The accept phase has two component pieces. We as the employer say, I accept that this is the candidate we want. So we're going to extend an offer to you. That candidate ideally accepts our job offer. They sign on the dotted line. They officially transition from being a prospective employee to being an actual employee. We then come to phase three, the affirm phase. Now, the affirm phase is all about the emotional feeling that someone has right after they accept the job offer. In a customer context, many of us are familiar with the phrase buyer's remorse. When a buyer begins to doubt the purchase decision they just made. Allow me to introduce you to a phrase that you might not be as familiar with, which is new hire's remorse. It's the exact same scientifically proven emotional experience that happens when someone accepts a job offer and then begins to doubt the decision they just made. 
Most organizations aren't doing anything to affirm the person's choice, which is why I see earlier statistic, 50% of the people went and accepted a different job offer because somebody came with something better, something more interesting, something more intriguing. We then come to the fourth phase of the eight phases, the activate phase. This is the first official day on the job, the first official day at work. So again, not day one in the 100 days. Day one in the 100 days began when they submitted the application, right? When they saw the ad, when they said, this is a place I want to work. This is often day 15, day 20, day 30, depending on where we are in the process. When they show up for that first day on the job, though, the question is, what are we going to do to make that day absolutely remarkable? Because what we know for a fact is at the end of that day, that employee is going to go home to their significant other, their spouse, their parents, their children, their roommate. On their way home, if they live alone, they're going to call someone. They're going to say, hey, you know, I just finished up. And what is that loved one going to say to them? The first question, how was the first day on the job? We as an organization should be thinking strategically about what we're doing to get them to answer that question in the way we'd like them to answer it. Because if I were to take anybody listening, Eric, and say, think of a job you had in the past and tell me about your first day on the job. Most people can describe in detail what happened on their first day on the job because it's that memorable. It's a core memory in our brains. So what are we doing to make that great? We then come to phase five. Okay, by the way, look at this. We're halfway through the eight phases and it's you've just shown up for your first day of work. Phase five is the acclimate phase. It begins on day two, your second day at work, and it continues for weeks or even months as you get used to this new position, this new business, this new culture, this way of operating. You're learning about the requirements of the job. You're learning about the role you play in the organization. You're learning about the responsibilities you have for the rest of the team and how you're going to deliver on your work. And you're learning about the relationships you have with the other people in the organization. Most organizations approach this time period with way too fast of action and an overload of information. Let me tell you everything you're ever going to need to know about this position on the first day at work. And then second day, just go figure it out. It'll be fine. No, we need to pump the brakes. We need to space it out. We need to bring these people into the fold over time. And that time is weeks or months. Now, usually to your point earlier, that hundred days is ending somewhere in the acclimate phase or maybe in this sixth phase, the accomplish phase. The accomplish phase is when an employee achieves the goal they originally had when they decided to come work for us. See, every employee has a vision of what this new position is going to be like. The question is, as employers, are we tracking what their goals are? Are we paying attention to their progress towards those milestones? And are we celebrating with them when they accomplish their goal? We then come to phase seven, the adopt phase. This is when the employee becomes loyal to us and only us. They're committed. They're not going to respond to that inquiry on LinkedIn. They're not going to pick up the call from the recruiter. They are committed. The challenge in the adopter phase, Eric, is that most of our adopters are our most loyal, our most valuable employees. And in many organizations, we woefully take them for granted. We do not show them the type of attention and care they deserve. And then when they quit, it is absolutely devastating to our business because not only do we lose a linchpin in our organization, the brain drain, the knowledge gap, the information that they leave with can be crippling. Last 
point we come to, the last of the eight phases is the advocate phase. This is when the employee becomes a raving fan, singing your praises far and wide. They're going on Glassdoor and they're writing reviews. You're looking to hire for a new position. They're referring friends and candidates to apply for that position who they know would be a great fit for your culture and your organization. These are the eight phases. And if we pay attention to these eight phases, we can build long-term engaged and retained team members. Wow. And okay, so now I've got a better picture, or at least the listener has a better picture of where that 100 days that we spent a bunch of time on, where that kind of drapes over like a tablecloth could be like the first five, six phases, basically. Absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes it might be shorter than that. Sometimes it might dip longer. Sometimes you might have reached some of the adoption level behaviors in the first 100 days. But in most organizations, and I'm going to define most as north of 90% of the companies I've seen around the world, that 100 days is happening. That finish line of 100 days is happening somewhere in the acclimate phase or maybe just the very beginning of the accomplish phase. Because here's the other nuance, Eric. When somebody hits their first accomplishment, what do they do? Well, they pick a different goal. Well, now that I've you know gotten used to this job, I've got a new goal. I want to be promoted to run this department. So now their goal changes. That moves out further. And in some ways, we push them back down into the acclimate phase as they're trying to acclimate to the things they would need to be able to do to achieve that next goal. And so what are we doing to kind of ebb and flow with our employees on an individual level, which is why this stuff becomes so challenging as your organization scales. You've got three employees. You can kind of pay attention to where they're at. You've got 300 employees. You better have a department that's paying attention to where they're at. Yeah, it it becomes a a different set of priority when it comes to that, when they're in that kind of acclimate phase and it's, you know, okay, acclimate. And then what was the next one? Achieve? Accomplish. Accomplished. Yes. Sorry. It's still an A word. Same thing. Still an A word. And it's the exact same thing. Whether they're achieving or accomplishing, that's where we're at. Disregarding the final two or three, accomplishing and acclimating cycles, you know, over and over again. You don't want to be complacent as an employee. You don't want them to be complacent as an employer. And so you want them to be continually hitting new goals and making new goals and then hitting them and achieving them and so on. Absolutely. And Eric, after they get comfortable, they start to vacillate between adopt and accomplish because they're bought in. They know how it works. Oh, I'm a doctor. I'm not going anywhere. But what's my goal for this quarter? What's my goal for this year? They're back and forth between I'm committed, I'm bought in, but I still need to feel a sense of progress. I still need to feel a sense of momentum and accomplishment. And as organizations, we want to be tracking that and celebrating it with those folks. Because if we as an organization don't celebrate when they accomplish the goal, they're probably not going to celebrate either. And if there's nothing to celebrate about the work you're putting in, it's real easy to leave and go work somewhere else. And that's totally true. And I've seen that happen as well. I think for me, as well as others, I couldn't help but also think of this kind of overarching themes, the wrong word, but new reality, I guess, that now covers all eight phases, but especially the early phases, four, five, six, when it comes to remote work. And that new dimension being added in to all of this. What are some of your thoughts on how these first four, five, six phases get affected by, I'm thinking specifically of affirmation. How do you affirm somebody when 
they're not coming into an office. I'm going back to the scenario you said where they can remember their first day, they do their first day, and then someone asks them, how was your first day? Meanwhile, they sat in the same place that they woke up in that whole day. Yeah, no, this is a great point. So we're in that, you know, first day on that job, that activate phase. How do we activate it? How do we energize it? How do we make it so remarkable? Two thoughts on that, Eric. Number one, many of the folks that are pushing for this return to office are saying, well, it was so much better before. Well, what did your company do on an employee's first day pre-COVID? Was it that memorable? Was it that remarkable? In most companies, statistically, it wasn't. No one knew they were starting. Their computer wasn't ready. Their desk wasn't ready. They came in. We took them into a conference room. We said, ah, here's some paperwork to fill out about your insurance and your 401k. Um, we're going to have you watch these sexual harassment videos that were filmed in the 70s. Uh, you stay here and sit awkwardly in this room by yourself and watch these videos, take this quiz, and I'll come back in two hours to take you to lunch with somebody who, by the way, is not really on your team, but it's somebody who we found who wanted to go to lunch with you today. And uh, they're not really going to have a lot to talk about, but they'll make sure you get fed and we'll, we'll pay for for it. Yay. And then you'll come back and we'll bring you back to the conference room again because, by the way, your desk still isn't ready and we don't have your computer hooked up and IT is behind things. So, you know what? Why don't you just take these binders home and read them and we'll see you tomorrow? That's what most first days look like in most large corporations pre-COVID. So let's not make it seem like it was so remarkable and amazing pre-COVID and that if they were just in the office, this would be so much better. How do we handle this in a remote scenario? Well, what happens if on the first day on the job, instead of making someone spend eight hours on Zoom or Teams or whatever video conferencing tool you're using, we say, hey, we're going to have a blend of different interactions. We're going to do a quick little call here with a whole group to greet you and to welcome you. Then you're going to have a separate call with one person. And then maybe, by the way, we have found out that there is another employee who lives within 20 miles of your house, and they're going to come and take you to lunch. And we're going to do some things that combine the physical world with this digital world we live in. What's the analog experience? Can we send you gifts? Can we send you things that make the experience more exciting? There's a company that I profile in the book called Budai Media. Okay, And Budai Media has 30 employees based in 17 time zones around the world. Okay, they are a fully distributed company and in the affirm phase. So after you've accepted your job, but before your first day on the job, they send you a package in the mail and the package very clearly says, do not open until we tell you to save this for the first day. So you get to the first day on the job, you get on the Zoom call, there's all the other people, they introduce you, there's some give and take, everybody goes around and says some fun things about themselves, not their name and their title, but like, oh, what are you binge watching on Netflix right now? What's your favorite board game to play? What's the best book you've read in the last six months? We're getting a feel for who they are as people and as individuals and as humans. And then they say to this employee, open up the box. And the employee opens the box and inside is a mug. Now, the mug doesn't have the logo of the company on it. The mug has photographs of all the Budai Media employees on it, including the newest hire. And as the employee picks up their mug to show on camera, they see that everybody else on camera is already holding a mug and they raise a glass and they toast this person on their first day. That's how you can create an analog experience that transcends remote work in a digital era. I'm not saying you have to do mugs with your whole team. What I am saying is you should think strategically and intelligently about what you can do to build personal and emotional connection with your folks who are working remotely. 
Man, that's a great story. And the, the impact that that can have. And again, there's so many different permutations, options that can be done. I'm thinking of, because my daughter just started college for the first time a few months ago, is sending them, you know, the acceptance letter for their offer, so to speak, and or sending them a t-shirt, a sweatshirt, send, you know, send them the box of swag for the company. Yes. Like, yes. you receive that in the mail after you've accepted or honestly, if you've not yet accepted, but they really want you, like, that's going to lock you in, right? It's like, oh my gosh, look at this amazing swag. Pick the right swag, obviously. One of the case study companies in the book is Lego. And what Lego does is when they send you the job offer, not only does it come with a letter of like, hey, we'd like to extend you this offer, it comes with some Lego sets and a little message that tongue in cheek says, come build something special with us. Love it. So now we're we're embracing the brand. We're embracing the spirit and the energy of the brand and saying, you're now part of this. The buy-in has to start earlier than most companies are starting it. Most companies are waiting until you've passed your probation period before we're going to invest in you. No, we got to start investing in them. If they are good enough for us to extend an offer, if we think they are valuable enough to extend an offer, the investment should begin with that offer. And it should continue every day until we have a reason not to invest in this employee anymore. Well, we should probably stop using, I have hated this word, your probation period. It's like, oh, it's ridiculous. What am I, a criminal? Come on. Exactly. Well, and and that's a problem. Most organizations are treating their employees that way. Most organizations will come in, oh, we're going to have a probationary period to test and see what this is like. And you're not going to get your health benefits until then. And you're not going to qualify for vacation until then. How about this? How about in the same way that you have me on probation, I'll put you on probation. I'll decide which of the assignments you give me I want to do. That would be laughable if an employee said that. And yet we seem to accept that a probation period for the employee is appropriate. Why? The probation period should be the application process when we're figuring it out. Or if you really want to have a probationary period, don't call it probation. Say, here's what we do. We have independent contractors and we have full-time employees. Your first experience with us is we are going to do three independent contractor jobs. You're going to be paid. We're going to ask you to do some work and we're going to evaluate your work based on those three jobs. If after those three jobs, we feel that you're performing, we may extend an offer for full-time employment or we may continue to extend offers for independent contractor project employment, or we may say we're parting as friends. But this idea of you're a full-time employee, but you're on probation, just stop. We can do better. Well, and I think it kind of goes into the, I never loved the term quiet quitting when it first came out, honestly, because it seemed like, well, duh, I've seen people doing this for years. It's not anything new. Yeah, this is a new phrase for something that's been happening for decades. Yeah. Bare minimum is not even, I think, adequate to describe it. I think it's doing your job description and not trying extra to advance or whatever. It's basically saying I'm not acclimating and I'm not achieving or I did it wrong again. It's not achieve. It's accomplishing. It's all good. It just locks in that way. Maybe we'll rename it. It's something for me to take under advisement. I love there you it. go. But I think it's almost just a, hey, I'm going to do what is expected of me. I'm not going to fall below an ex- expectation bar, but I'm going to reach that point where, okay, well, I've not been given any incentive to acclimate and accomplish. So I'm not going to enter into that cycle right now and waste energy. 
A hundred percent. And let's take it one step further. What is the game we are playing with employees when we say, here is your job description and what I want you to do? And when you do that and nothing more, we deem that as bad. I'm sorry. How did we decide that that's bad? If there's something you want me to be evaluated on, if there's something that you need me to do, put it in the requirements, put it in the job, put it in my task. I don't know about you, but I, you know, I liken this stuff to dating, right? Because so much of it, the analogy is so clear in dating. You start dating someone and you have an expectation of how you're supposed to show up and an expectation of how you're hoping they show up. And if those two expectations align, Ah, match made in heaven. We're feeling good. Life is happy, right? But it is completely ridiculous for me to have expectations for someone that I haven't expressed, that I haven't shared with them, especially in a work context. If I expect you to be at your desk at 8 a.m., I should say, and we expect you to be at your desk at 8 a.m. If I never say that, who am I to get upset if you don't show up at your desk until 8.30? We need to get clear on what the actual expectations for our team members are and explicitly state what those expectations are. And we also need to recognize that our employees have expectations for us too. And that's more than fair. And those expectations can go beyond, hey, you're going to pay me every two weeks. We can expect other things from our employers and employees listening That's a responsibility that you have. Remember, we were talking earlier about that. Who's responsible for it? This falls into the portion that you're responsible for to say, hey, my expectation is that I'm working here and I'm contributing and I'm learning. And a year from now, I want to be further ahead in this organization than I am today. And two years from now, I want to have had a promotion. And four years from now, I want to be running a division. These are my goals. Help me to understand the path I need to do to get to that goal. And we may say, hey, Joey, that path is unreasonable for four years. That's a nine-year path at our organization. Or we might say, hey, Joey, if you really perform, that's an 18-month path. Here's what the criteria are. Here's what we're looking for. Here's what you need to do. I think it's all based on that clear, open, honest communication that said these changes that we're looking to have happen aren't going to happen by turning the page and getting to the end of the book. Now, you've got to start implementing it, of course. But as we wind down here, as an employer, let's address this in both sides like we did from the start. Employers and employees picking this book up and starting to make the changes, what are the first initial things that you would suggest both sides of that start to get working on? Well, to keep it clear, let's focus on the employers first, and then we'll come back to the employees. So the first thing an employer can do is to map out the existing employee journey. What are you currently doing right now? So many organizations have grown and morphed and evolved in a way that even the senior leaders have no idea what's happening in the application, hiring, onboarding, training, educating, continued engagement process. They're so disconnected from it. So the first thing we can do is map out what's going. Align that to the eight phases we talked about earlier, and you'll pretty quickly find areas for improvement. I'd be willing to bet that most people, when I went through the eight phases earlier, any employers listening were going, you know, we really don't do anything in the affirm phase. Oh, the acclimate phase, we measure that in hours, not weeks and months. You already are thinking of things. So the first step, get a feel for reality 
and then start to chip away at the things you need to do to be more clear in the expectations. On the employee side, same thing. When you are applying for a job, when you're going through the onboarding process, take a vested interest in your own career growth. Make it clear to the organization from the beginning what your goals are what you're hoping to do. Ask the kind of questions to say, if my goal is to get promoted here, what would I need to do? What would I need to be showing you? What proof points would you need? And what is a reasonable expectation for me to have as to when I will have been able to show you enough to merit a promotion? Have those conversations during the interview. Have those conversations with your manager. Get really clear on what it is, if that's your goal. If your goal isn't promotion, if your goal is, I just want a J-O-B, I just want to be able to go to work and do my job, well, then fine, be clear about that. Say, hey, so that you know, I'm here to be a fantastic, reliable, consistent worker. I'm not interested in climbing a ladder. I'm not interested in advancement in terms of title. I'm interested in advancement around my own abilities and my efficiency and my productivity. What would you recommend I need to do to be able to consistently show you value in my role? Most managers, when asked that question, are going to be like, oh my God, finally, finally, someone that's willing to do something around here. And they will be very excited to have that conversation with you. Love it. It's a great place to start, but obviously I want to get people funneled into starting to do that, which means grab the book, but also find out more about the book. So Joey, where can people go find out more about you, where you're going to be speaking slash dive into the book? So let's talk about the book because you can get that real fast and real easy wherever you like to get books. So I always like to share with people, the title of the book is Never Lose an Employee Again. It's available in hardcover if you like to actually hold a book in your hand. It's available as an ebook so you can highlight in your Kindle or your Nook. It's available as an audio book. So if you've enjoyed the sound of me talking to Eric on our call today, I actually narrate the audio book. So I will read the book to you available wherever you like to get books. If you want to learn more about my work, my talks, my workshops, the consulting engagements I do, the best place to find me is on my website, joeycoleman.com. That's J-O-E-Y, like a baby kangaroo or a five-year-old you know. Coleman, C-O-L-E-M-A-N, like the camping equipment, but no relation. JoeyColeman.com. There you'll find information about how to never lose a customer again, how to never lose an employee again, speeches, workshops, support materials, implementation kits, so you can take what we learned today in the podcast and actually apply it in your business with worksheets and workbooks, all kinds of stuff there for folks to check out. Is it bad that I just pictured a young kangaroo on a campsite enjoying his time? It was very intentional, Eric, and I'm thrilled to hear that it worked. (laughs) Awesome. Well, I'm going to leave you with that mental picture, but just, Joey, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your insight and your knowledge here. And I know this book is going to be a big impact on this new world of work we've got going on. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Eric. And thanks to everybody for listening in today. I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Eric. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Joey Coleman as much as I did. He's got great energy and great insight and experience to share. If you happen to be someone in a job search mode, or if you happen to be an employer looking to hire the right people, this book is perfect for you. You can grab it through the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com. 
And if you are somebody who is in either one of those boats or you know someone who is, do them that favor of sharing this episode with them so that they find out about this amazing book. Hit that share button wherever you are listening to this, your podcast player app of choice. Let them know about this book, conversation, and insights. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for listening. And I will see you next episode.